State of emergency declared in Egypt after hundreds are killed in Cairo's violence. Leaving Afghanistan, how the logistics experts are planning to bring the kit home. An extraordinary amount of it has come by air. And the reverse journey is just as complex and just as expensive. And are you a veteran? We look at the personal and public perceptions of former servicemen and women. Hello, I'm James Hurst, in for Kate Jabot this week. Now, the Egyptian government says more than 500 people are now known to have died and more than 3,000 were injured in violence across the country yesterday. It was sparked by military action to clear anti-government protest camps in Cairo. It was Egypt's bloodiest day since the pro-democracy uprising two years ago. The Muslim Brotherhood are claiming at least five times that figure have been killed. There has been international condemnation of the military crackdown. And joining us today to discuss this, Nadine Shahadi, Associate Fellow of the Chatham House Middle East and North Africa programme. Also with me in the studio, Major General Julian Thompson, who commanded three commando brigades during the Falklands conflict, and of course our own defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Nadim Shahadi, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. It's no. six weeks since President Mohamed Morsi was deposed by the military on after those mass protests, the violent scenes we had yesterday, were, were they inevitable after that or could that have been avoided? Well, the whole coup could have been avoided. I think that the coup was a big mistake uh, by, the, by the military because they've, in, in a way, they've, they've given the Muslim Brotherhood a huge favour. The Muslim Brotherhood was becoming very unpopular. They were... They were behaving in a way that was doomed to fail, and they would have definitely lost an election, which, and whatever happens in Egypt would affect the fate of the Muslim Brotherhood in the whole region. So by making victims out of them, the army has rescued their reputation. And it's interesting you use you use the word coup in all the international condemnation from the U.S. Secretary of State, the EU Foreign Policy Chief, UN, and, and Britain. The word coup hasn't been used. Well, yes, the the word coup is a very sensitive word in Egypt, and diplomats are not advised to use it. Why not? Well, because the there was a there was a genuine popular protest against Morsi. The, 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 there were millions of people protesting against Morsi's record in, in, in power. And the, the military stepped in and took advantage of that to, to, to regain power. And the debate in Egypt is not about the coup. It's about how to continue with the transition. Um, and... A lot of the population think that the military stepped in to basically rescue Egypt from the Muslim Brotherhood who were going to spoil the system in any case. Christopher, how concerned are Britain and other Western countries about what ha what's happening in Egypt destabilising not just Egypt but the rest of the region? It is a regional problem. Nadim has got this right in the money here. You know, He talks about um, uh, if you 
get rid of the reputation as it stands at the moment of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, then you destroy their reputation through, throughout the region. That's very important. But what's fascinating on this term coup, coup is something which bothers the State Department and the British Foreign Office, for example. They don't want to say coup, and they will tell you, for example, that a coup is when the military take over and only have a military government. That's the, that's the deal at the moment. But they have a conundrum. Just the, uh, the Foreign Secretary, uh, William Hague, is saying, uh, we want the military to get free elections going yet again, and that's very important for the future of Egypt. But they can't answer this question. What happens if the Muslim Brotherhood wins again? Which every sign that they could win again, in spite of their unpopularity over, largely over the economy. Uh, if democratic elections eventually do go ahead, Nadim. Uh, how likely do you think it is that it, it would be a different result? Well, I think the most important element of it is that it's an unpredictable result, and that's what elections should be like. And that's the type of election that elected Mursi, and he was the first civilian president elected in that way in the whole Arab world. So that his, his election was very significant in, 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 in a region in, in, tra in transition. But what happened, in a way, feeds into two bad arguments. One bad argument says that if Muslim Brotherhood types come to power, then they will rig the system and spoil it, and it will be one man, one vote, one time. And another argument, which is by the extremists amongst the Muslim Brotherhood, is that it's that participation in democratic elections is useless. They, they, they should use violence to take power. Because even if they participate in elections, then the elections will be cancelled. And they use Algeria 1991 and uh, Palestine 2006 as, a, as, an, as an example. So, so, this, so, so what happened in Egypt feeds into or strengthens two very bad arguments about democracy in the Do, region. From, 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 a, from a sort of outsider's perspective, people will be looking and going, well, is Egypt not one of these countries where whoever wins, there will be people who won't accept the result and just take to the streets? Like any other country. I mean, uh, whoever, well, not necessarily take to the streets, but uh, uh, whoever wins, there, there, are, there are losers, and that's, that's what democracy is, is about. Christopher, very briefly, do, do you think the um, British government is um, thinking about whether or not it can, can have any influence in this and what it would want to achieve if it, it did? It can't have any influence directly in it, but it can have an influence in places like United Nations, etc. What they're far more concerned about is people don't understand this point. The pro original protest two years ago... If you say they were by sort of young, sort of 25, 30-year-olds, uh, been to university or good education, and they wanted change, they wanted jobs, they wanted change in Egypt, you cannot change Egypt in a year, two years, three years, five years. It's a generational thing, and it's the huge expectations which probably neither side can actually deliver on. 
Okay, Christopher, thank you for that. And Nadeem Shahadi, thank you uh, very much indeed for joining us today. Now, with less than 16 months before the end of British combat operations in Afghanistan, the task of clearing the country of tonnes of UK military equipment is gathering pace. Although many items are no longer needed by the forces, they are not going to waste. A civilian contractor has been hired to market millions of pounds worth, getting the best price for the taxpayer. BFBS reporter Jeff Mead joins us from Camp Bastion. Jeff, you've been talking to the man in charge of all this. That's right, James. He's Brigadier Chris Murray, who, two years after retiring as director of the Royal Logistic Corps, is now applying the experience he gained in closing down operations in Bosnia to the biggest challenge of its kind. He heads a company called Agility Logistics, and the firm has been awarded the contract to sell off what's called non-warlike surplus. It's all part of the complex business of winding up the UK's longest foreign conflict of modern times. The British Army has been in Afghanistan in large numbers for more than 10 years and everything that they've had to sustain themselves that isn't military weaponry and ammunition and the like, there's a really good chance we are going to be disposing of that. It has taken years, Jeff, to get all this stuff in, into Afghanistan. How are they planning to get it out? Well, the scale alone is eye-watering. Since they began in April, Agility tell me they've processed over 85,000 individual items and are still only about a tenth of the way through. You're right, though, with few trunk roads, virtually no railway and certainly no port, shifting all that presents a whole different challenge, especially with the Afghan government recently threatening to charge duty on every container that crosses its border. So, as Chris Murray explained, the best answer may be to sell off as much as possible right here in the region. Every item that come here has either come on a fairly torturous surface journey uh, or an, an extraordinary amount of it has come by air. And the reverse journey is just as complex and just as expensive. Well, uh, somebody with some experience of this is with us, Major General Julian Thompson, who credits not only uh, from the uh, Falklands conflict. Do you think, from your experience, they're going about this the right way? I'm sure they are, because the chaps who are doing it are expert logisticians. Of course, the difference between doing a withdrawal from Bosnia was that by the time they did it, the place was reasonably peaceful, there was a large port nearby, there was a, a decent uh, communication system. Here, it's quite different. And the, the problem with withdrawal always is maintaining sufficient to keep the guys going while you're still there, not hollowing it out so badly that you turn around and say, my God, we haven't got whatever it is you need, or over-egging it and leaving so much that you've got to leave it behind because you can't get it out in time. And, uh, Christopher, of course, the, the MOD under pressure not only because money is tight, but also because they're under pressure to make best use of their money. They're going to need to satisfy the politicians that they have actually got the best prices for this stuff, aren't they? Yeah, best prices, but there's, also, there's another side of it. Um, we are part of the system that is trying to rebuild or build the... Afghan National Army into a, a, not just a, a good fighting force but to a big properly structured force. We could leave quite a lot of the stuff that frankly what do we do with when we get it back here anyway? We could leave a lot of the stuff to the Afghan National Army which is going to happen. But you then have to think to yourself, hang on if we leave some stuff and it starts getting into the wrong hands, 
then what are we going to be uh, accused of? But it's the building and the strength of the Afghan National Army which is so important. And, and Jeff, of course, if we gift stuff to the Afghans, there's then a question of, of how perhaps, in, certainly in terms of uh, mechanical equipment, they actually maintain and use it. Yes, what's being handed over is very limited. It's things like mine detectors, night vision goggles, uh, because Chris Murray and others, and particularly those currently in senior military uh, levels on this, say, well, it's all very well, but if we do leave them complex equipment, uh, that's got to be maintained, it's got to be serviced, it's got to be supplied. You know, the logistic train is extremely complex, and it's one of the areas uh, that the Afghan national forces still have to uh, evolve and develop into. A further complication is faced by the Americans. Now, they are limited by congressional writ. They, were, they are not allowed, for instance, uh, to give to the Afghans things like uh, MRAPs, mine resistance and ambush protected vehicles. Um, a fifth of those, and they cost about £700,000, a million dollars each, will be destroyed here in Afghanistan, leaving the ANA to cruise around in relatively undefended uh, vehicles uh, and pickup trucks to carry the fighting to the enemy uh, with all the risk that that entails. So that seems slightly skewed, but the Americans are, are tied by congressional writ. They only plan to repatriate 80% of our vehicle, of their vehicles. We're hoping to get back 99% of ours. OK, Jeff, thank you very much. Jeff Mead in Camp Bastion, thank you for joining us. And Christopher and Julian, stay with us. Still to come, India's got a new aircraft carrier, while one of its Russian-built submarines has sunk after a fatal fire. So what does this all say about their strategic profile? And if you're ex-forces, do you see yourself as a veteran? Exercise Prairie Thunder has been taking place at Battus in Canada, the culmination of foundation training for 20 Armour Brigade ahead of their next deployment on Operic 20, where they will see the end of the British combat missions in Afghanistan. And Ali Gibson reports for us from Canada. The Challenger 2 tank advances looking for enemy positions. Leading on the Warrior Armoured Vehicles of 5th Battalion, the Rifles, the Queen's Royal Hussars use their tanks to hit heavy armour targets before infantry troops dismount and destroy the enemy close up. For 41 years, Battus has been offering training for what's known as combined arms manoeuvre, giving armoured regiments the freedom to practice joint attacks. Major Charlie Haynes is the officer commanding a squadron of the QRH. It's the only place that you can practice big sweeping manoeuvre. Clearly there are all sorts of different theories going on about the future character of conflict. But for us, if we're going to develop tempo and agility as an armoured regiment and indeed develop our young commanders, for us as tank soldiers, this is one of the best places in the world to do it. The QRH are joined in this exercise by units from across 20th Armour Brigade, including two companies from five rifles. Soldiers like Rifleman Robert Evans are taking advantage of what Canada has to offer. It is a good experience. It's different to anything we've ever done. A lot of the lads have just come out of training, so they haven't even touched Warrior. This is the first time they've seen Warriors. It's quite hard to describe just how big Battus is, and 2,690 square kilometres of uninhabited prairie is hard to imagine. But when you think that Salisbury Plain could fit in here nine times over, or that it's bigger than all of the training areas in the UK and Europe combined, you realise just how it all compares. For WO2 Paul Buckfield, Battus offers a 360-degree battle. A lot of the training areas where we work from the outside in, 
here you've got the flexibility to work from the inside out. So regardless of where you are on the batter's training area, you don't always know which direction the enemy is going to be coming from. So whereas other training areas uh, through Europe, it's pretty easy to identify what direction you're going to be engaging. In many ways, Exercise Prairie Thunder is a return to the traditional. Just a few seconds with the AS-90 gun and this exercise seems appropriately named. Capable of firing up to 24 kilometres, the 2-6 Regiment Royal Artillery is their role to protect forward troops, often firing at enemy targets close to them. Because of its size, it's not a gun that's used in Afghanistan. Second Lieutenant Mark Woods. It takes us back to conventional operations where we can use Challenger 2s and our AS-90s. So it's, it's great for the guys to sort of train on what they kind of hear about in the uh, batteries but don't really get the chance to do so much uh, when they're back in Europe. But this is a brigade for whom operations are very much a reality. Next year, 20 Armoured, who were the last combat brigade in Iraq, will do the same in Afghanistan on Op Herrick 20. Lieutenant Colonel Jamie Howard is the commanding officer of the Queen's Royal Hussars. The physical pressure, the psychological pressure on people, Battus provides the best training, in my view, that we have for that step into MST, mission-specific training for Afghanistan. It puts commanders under great pressure. It puts headquarters at both the battle group level and the subunit commanders, the company and squadron leaders, under enormous pressure as well. And that can only help them improve their decision-making. So Batis is not directly related to what we're doing in Afghanistan in any way, but it absolutely applies to everything we're doing in Afghanistan. As 20 Brigade keep one eye on Afghanistan, Batis is also about them keeping another on the future and cultivating those transferable skills ready for any future conflict. BFPS reporter Ali Gibson in Canada. Chris, she was talking there about it being traditional training. She mentioned the the AS-90, not a weapon used in Afghanistan, and arguably not a weapon we're going to be using in the foreseeable future. Do, do the army still need to, to train in the traditional way? Or yeah, you do, because I mean, any, anybody can figure out what the next conflict is going to be uh, is, is, is prize material. Um, John Knott, who was Defence Secretary, when he went into the Defence Ministry, and he asked, now we're talking about 81, I think it was, wasn't it, Julian? 81, he went in. Uh, and he asked his Permanent Secretary, how many, out of all the conflicts, it was 216 conflicts since World War uh, Two, had they predicted? And he said, two, perhaps three. Um, and so I think, yeah, you train for everything you've got. If you've got equipment, you've got to go and train to use it. Now, whether... The chieftain tank has a future. Whether the whole armoured concept has a future uh, is, is, an, is, a, is another matter. But while you've got it, while you're commanding it, then go and trade to best how to use it. You're nodding there, Julian Thompson. Uh, I mean, is, is, it, is it difficult as a, an army commander to work out that balance be- between making the best use of the, the tried and tested skills and developing your your team for the future as well. Well, because you don't know what the future is, pick up Chris's point, and what you need, I think, and I believe this very strongly, is to use the kit you've got, which you might have to use, and furthermore, you train for the worst situation, the toughest, hardest fighting you can have. You can always scale down. You can't scale up. Yeah, it's to train for when you don't have the kit. I mean, you, you've trained at, at Batters. Yes, it's a fantastic place, and one of the reasons it was so good is you could live fire there, which you couldn't do in, in a large scale in Germany, which is why it was set up. It was set up for the Cold War, and it was set up to train um, armoured uh, battle groups 
to use live weapons. It's a huge area, and I've, I've flown over it in a helicopter. It's quite near America, and you get high enough, and you can see Montana away there, and you can see the Rockies away to, to, the, to your right if you're facing south. I mean, certainly to, to a lot of people uh, who, who I talk to who, who, who don't have any experience with the armed forces, they're really surprised to hear there's an army presence in Canada. Is, is that something, given that we, you know, Britain is looking at where it's spending its money and its overseas presence, are we going to want to hang on to that? Well, I hope they hang on to it, because you certainly can't do what you do at Battersea in the United Kingdom unless you take over the whole of about East Anglia and clear the whole population out. Can I just point out there's been a British Army presence in Canada since the 18th century? Well, yes. Since Quebec. <laughs> since Quebec. Yes, but, 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 but these just, days people don't think about it being no, in Canada. Canada it's another thing here. We're talking of equipment. Did you need to train on that equipment, etc., etc.? What is the most valuable part of Battersea or anywhere is that you train men. You train men to work together, you train coordination, you train command systems from NCOs right up to uh, the commanding officer himself. That is the invaluable thing, because when you get an infantry, a guards division, for example, that suddenly becomes an armoured guards division, you have to be just as good at that. This is BFBS SIGREP. Indian divers are struggling to search a submarine which sank after it exploded in a Mumbai dockyard. There are 18 sailors feared to be dead inside. Rescuers are yet to reach any of the crew who were on board when two huge explosions led to a devastating fire early on Wednesday. The divers are also working to bring the vessel back to the surface. India's Navy chief has warned the country to prepare for the worst. Uh, Christopher, not clear what caused the explosion, the question a lot of people will be asking, is it sabotage? Uh, yeah, there's no evidence, and there couldn't be any evidence yet of what caused it, but think think where it is. Uh, battery rooms, around there you've got hydrogen, oxygen, apart from if you might even have any sort of uh, weapon systems aboard, but you've got all the ingredients for a bang, and therefore it could be very, very simply an accident. The last um, submarine uh, failure like this was an accident. It was a failure of equipment. This one's just come back out of refit. Uh, when things come out of refit, there are all sorts of people who can make someone switch it up the right way. Gene uh, Thompson, it must be the wor- worst thing for a, uh, for, for a senior officer to warn the country to prepare for the worst. Yes, it is. Uh, but it's much better to do that than to try a cover-up. Uh, and I think that Chris was alluding to the last accident, which was the Kursk, and there was an attempt at a cover-up, I think I'm right in saying to begin with. You must never do that. That's right, and, and, and the UK actually offered to help rescue those guys, yep. and the Russians said, no, no, there's no problem. Um, look what happened. Very briefly, Chris, you know, this comes two days after India launches its first home-built aircraft carrier. Yeah, so, what, what do they say about their strategic profile at the moment? Their strategic ambitions. I mean, don't forget who their, strate- their strategic uh, sort of so-called difficult neighbour is in Pakistan, and their streaks ahead, and they're going ahead in a different direction. The other thing is not just the aircraft carrier. The aircraft carrier also has to have a constant six surface fleet escort, plus a submarine escort, and the, uh, the Indians about to start training on the idea of a nuclear-powered uh, submarine and and potentially nuclear-powered weaponry on board, because don't forget, India is a nuclear power. Next on SITREP this week, more than a decade of war in Afghanistan has led to huge changes in the public's perception of Britain's armed forces. The military covenant has been enshrined in law. Millions of pounds have been raised by charities to support our veterans. But do all former servicemen and women see themselves as veterans? And are they 
Veterans for Life. Well, uh, Dr Hugh Milroy is Chief Executive of Veterans Aid. He joins us uh, from Westminster. Good, uh, hello to you. Let's start with this term veteran. It, it's not really a British thing, a word the Americans have, have sort of used. How would you describe a veteran, Dr Milroy? Well... Good afternoon. It's uh, very, very interesting how p- various people see themselves as, uh, as to whether they're veterans or not veterans. Uh, particularly youngsters uh, leaving the armed forces uh, in their 20s, they don't see themselves as veterans. And yet it is a term which there needs to be a term to encompass uh, this group, this large cohort of people in the UK. And, and veterans, you know, whether people like it or not, I think is here to stay. Is active service a prerequisite? Well, certainly not with us as a charity. Um, basically, you need to have served in the armed forces. And as a frontline charity, Veterans Aid sees many people um, who have never served on operations. Uh, so we wouldn't see that as a prerequisite to be called uh, a veteran. Uh, and are you vet- do, do people see themselves as a veteran for life once they've left the forces? No, that's, that's not the impression I, I get at all. And, you know, we took... Uh, in Veterans Aid, we took 3,000 calls for help last year. It, it, most of the things we dealt with were transient. Uh, they weren't saying this was to be their defining uh, category for the rest of their lives. And, and I, I have real worries about defining people by, a, you know, throughout life by a, partic- a job at a particular time or indeed by an incident or, or something that happened a long time ago. We really should, uh, you should, in the natural order of things, be able to let go. Uh, Julian Thompson, you served in the in the Royal Marines. Christopher Lee, you served in the in, in the Navy. Uh, do you see yourselves as veterans, Julian? I see myself as one, but I don't dwell on it. It's not something I'd like to introduce myself as. I'm a veteran of this, that, and the other. But I see myself as one, and in that sense, I can equate with others from all services of all ages, women and men, as an ex-service person. I think that's the, that's the term which for many years we accepted ex-service men and women. We, we talked about that all the time. What is quite interesting now is the way that newspapers latch onto something. You get some guy, unfortunately, hit over the head or mugged or whatever, and they say uh, sort of uh, a veteran soldier or whatever, and you, you know, poor chap was in the Korean War. I mean, this this idea, somebody's in a shop doorway, uh, there are a thousand uh, ex-vets or, or vets in shop doorways in London, which is not a correct uh, statistic, yeah. by the way. And suddenly that is supposed to tell you that's a tragedy, a bigger tragedy than a straightforward guy who hasn't been in the services. Uh, and, of course, it's not. And it, it's a crisis which you know, people like Hugh have to deal with often in the same way as somebody who deals purely with civilians. Dr Milroy, has veteran become a a loaded word? I mean, to to my mind, I I wonder if it it all automatically carries connotations of later age and actually you're you're thinking about you know people in their 20s now crafting well, veterans indeed i think christopher hit the nail on the head there that there it's almost linear the connection is almost linear um and it's suggesting all sorts of issues like institutionalization or something wrong the, the fact that the vast bulk of veterans are, are, are just in the military family the military community in this country and getting on with their life seems to be lost but it, it is remarkable how you know i, I think the other word which which just floated around so often by the media in particular is word hero. Mm-hmm. And um, it is so difficult uh, to to get round that. When the media come to a veterans' aid and they, 
they do approach us a lot. Um, it is always, you know, particularly red tops, it's from that standpoint that military service equates to dysfunction. Because uh, the, the elephant in the room is, of course, is that the vast bulk of veterans have, or uh, ex-service personnel, have left and gone on to make uh, themselves very handy in the UK and had good lives. Uh, Gillian Thompson, you, you, you shook your head at the word hero. I'm getting the sense that it's not a word you like. I hate the word, and, and I agree <laughs> with Shan Hackett, who probably had one of the most distinguished army careers ever, who used to say there are very few heroes on a battlefield, just people doing their job. Uh, Hugh Milroy, with, with the end of British combat operations in Afghanistan uh, looming, what is that going to mean for former servicemen and women, veterans, and, and the public perception of them? What, what, what the man in the civilian man or woman in the street thinks of them? Do you know what's really odd to me, and, and I don't know if, if, if your other guests would, would chime, uh, find this chiming with their thoughts, what's really odd here is that war fighting has been going on for a long time. You know, I think there's one year since 45 we haven't opened fire. You know, Northern Ireland was a very long campaign. Um, so, you know, and people leave the services every year. You know, this is the, this is this, this is the run of the, the, the water here. This, but but, this but Afghanistan has changed the profile of that, hasn't it, just because of the way it's been covered? Sure, and, and, and I do get that, and certainly the way the press have been approaching it. You know, we could have two people with us, one from Northern Ireland, you know, South Armagh, five tours, um, and then one from Afghanistan, and it's the Afghanistan one. Day. So there, is, there has been this, uh, what could only be described as, uh, from my perspective, uh, hype, um, that um, something was unique about it. But certainly when they come to us, uh, and you know what we see it is is it's all about life in Britain you know that's that's the real issue they face when they leave it, it, life in Britain is complex and expensive uh, regardless of who you are but I'm very clear in my own mind that despite all the hype uh, uh, the fact is that if you're in crisis in this country and you are in the ex-service community you are Citizen Plus. OK, Hugh I'm Milroy, we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you very much indeed for your thoughts this week. And to my guest, Major General Julian Thompson and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. You can join us on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. We're back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, James Hurst, thanks for listening and goodbye.